I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I am so delighted to be joined today by Naima Koster, who is the author of What's Mine and Yours and Halsey Street, which was a finalist for the 2018 Kirkus Prize for Fiction. She holds an MFA in creative writing from Columbia University, as well as degrees from Fordham University and Yale. She has taught writing for over a decade in community settings, youth programs, and universities, and she lives in Brooklyn with her family. Welcome. It's so nice to have you here. It's so nice to be here, to be with you. So thank you for having me, Maris. What's Mine and Yours is so epic in scope, your new novel. Um, I I was hoping we could start uh, with just a little scene that struck me um, about halfway through the book. Um, The character, Diane, Mm -hmm. who has a rough relationship with her parents and her two sisters says, you don't get to choose your family. And her partner, Alma, all, who they all think is Diane's roommate, <laughs> yeah, says, yes, you fucking do. And that seemed to me to be a, a really good short way to describe uh, some of the themes in your book. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think that this book is so much about what we can't see about ourselves and our family members. And Diane, who is one of three girls in one of the families we're following, she's very attached to her image of her mother and sort of protects that image at the expense of her own happiness um, and and her chosen family with her partner, Alma. Yeah. Um and and her sisters also have this struggle between um who they've chosen and who they are um encumbered with <laughs> maybe yeah yeah and i think that you know the book is about it's about love in many ways and different kinds of love love between siblings love between partners um with parents and their children and then also you know the limits of that love and the ways that we can 
turn away from some of the relationships that are dearest to us. Yeah. So you, you have written this book that spans about 30 years in the lives of these two families. How, how did you start out? How did you um, come to the idea? How did you develop all of these characters so beautifully? Yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, What's Mine and Yours started with a short story about a woman named Lacey May who was struggling financially and trying to keep the heat on for her girls while her husband was away struggling with addiction. And that story gave me the seed for this novel. So the book focuses on Lacey May and her three daughters and the lengths that Lacey May will go to to protect their futures. But it also focuses on another mother named Jade who suffers a terrible loss and has to figure out how to move on and how to protect the future of her son, G. And so Jade is thrilled when she hears about a program integrating a local high school and the opportunity that that will create for her son, G. But G has more mixed feelings about it. He's sort of anxious about visibly being one of the new Black students in the school, about having this family history that he's learned he's supposed to keep a secret. And he ultimately becomes friends with Lacey May's daughter, Noelle, um, which creates all kinds of problems for their families since others are on opposite sides of the integration debate. Yeah. And and we don't get to that part of the book until like, what is it, 150 or 200 pages in? Something like that. Maybe, <laughs> maybe a... Let's see. I think it's around a hundred pages. Okay. hundred pages and we get there. A hundred pages. Um, So you do a lot of these families circling around each other and and waiting. Uh, We we wait for them to interact and for the sparks to fly. Yeah. You know, I wanted to show all of the individual lives that go into a family system, sort Mm -hmm. of the secret struggles and desires that shape the whole life of a family, but that you don't always know your mother or sister or son is going through. And of course, if you follow two families for 30 years, I'm wondering about um, what you choose to include. And if there are scenes that you discarded, it's almost like, I mean, it's the art of world building, basically. Um, You create these huge overarching stories for these families, and then you pick and choose what parts of it to reveal. Yeah, you know, there's the past sort of storyline in this book, and then there's a more present time storyline. So the past one goes from the 90s into the early 2000s, and then the present time one from 2018 to 2020. So... I try to think about which moments in the past and which in the present would speak to each other powerfully, whether that's charting out the tensions between Lacey May's daughters, the Ventura girls, or tracing what happens to G and Noel when they're adolescents versus when they're adults. So that helped me figure out what moments to drop in on um, because there were so many to choose from. And of course, you they're temporarily out of order too. So there, there's that added um, challenge uh, of um, 
kind of remembering what goes where and being able to tell me like do you have like note cards all over your desk <laughs> or like what, what how do you do this well you know I think of myself as as following like threads um and I I follow the thread rather than following chronology mm -hmm. so for example with someone like Noelle Lacey May's eldest daughter she's um, a white presenting Latina who identifies as a person of color, but isn't always seen that way. Mm -hmm. And that's really important to her story. It shapes how she relates to G in the high school, how she relates to her sisters who look different than she does and all identify differently, shapes her relationship to her mom who has these racist ideas. And so you know, that provides some focus for what I look in on when she's an adolescent. And then also how she's navigating that identity as a person of color who isn't always seen as a person of color when she's an adult living in the suburbs outside of Atlanta. So I, I think about what's important to the characters as a sort of organizing principle. But yes, I also have lots and lots of notes. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the Piedmont, which is where so much of, of the book takes place in North Carolina, about the, the unique circumstances there that kind of add to the add to the plot. I lived in Durham, North Carolina for three years. I relocated there from New York City, and I was fascinated by the city. Um, it's a growing and changing city. People describe it as part of the New South. There are a lot of New Yorkers who relocate mm -hmm. to Durham, and it's also a city with no racial majority, and that describes itself as such. So it's a really diverse place, but a place where there is a lot of inequality and separation, much like New York City, where I live now. Um, and so I was interested in that, in, in such a diverse place, but the divisions that still exist and the tension over who deserves what resources in the city and quality public education being one of those resources. Um, so I was interested in, in the city of Durham, but the, the history of integration in the, in the city of Durham is different than some other places in North Carolina. Mm. I was interested in what I'd learned about integration efforts in Raleigh that were successful for a time and then rolled back. And so I just said it in the Piedmont, sort of in this larger region of North Carolina, so that I could be thinking about several different cities at once. And then also just like the landscape and the land of the Piedmont, um, which is really beautiful. It's just a beautiful place to be and write about. Yeah. And, you know, they, they get to go to the beach. They get, I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. a drive. It's a drive. But uh, it's worth the drive. It's worth the drive. <laughs> yeah. And they get to like experience, um, so many different like uh microclimates almost yeah i mean north carolina is amazing like there's the mountains and the ocean and then the foothills and so many trees i think it's one of the states with the highest number of trees per capita it's also mm -hmm. just like a lush and lovely place and i wanted to write about it and naima i have to admit that i i googled the piedmont just to like get a <laughs> sense of what we were talking about and the thing that struck me was that tobacco is still a major crop there. Yeah, you know, one of the things that is so interesting about Durham and a few other cities in that region 
is that there are all these old tobacco factories that have been remade into loft apartments and boutiques um, and are now part of what makes the city sort of attractive to newcomers. But, you know, some of the divisions from that time um, when the factories were operational and thriving are still persistent in terms of where people live. Sure. You zoom in, really, uh, in the beginning of the novel, and you focus on two men who enjoy and respect each other in in this kind of small, intimate way. Tell me about that, and then tell me about zooming out. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the book starts with these two men and their dreams, sort of their dreams for their lives. One man, Robbie, is dreaming about having a house for his wife, Lacey May, and that kind of inheritance for them, that Mm -hmm. stability, making sure they're in a good zip code and can get a good education. And then the other man, Ray, who it's a big day for him at a bakery that's new in the downtown, and he's hoping to make some money for his partner, Jade, and their son, G, but also he's dreaming of a new way of relating and having a kind of love that's more harmonious and steady in his family than he had as as a child. And so these men share about their dreams um, before they both fall on serious misfortune and for Ray, tragedy. And then I think the book that unfolds is about how these two families and the women who are left behind, Jade and Lacey May, have to put together new dreams for themselves and for their children. And I think the grief that stays with both families over the years, although they don't really talk about it in those terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's you, you definitely have to read between the lines, but there's definitely a thread of generational trauma and how that's passed down. Um, and, and I had forgotten how, um, yeah, it's so important to Robbie and then to Lacey May to have a plot of land to leave their, like to literally leave their children. Tell me about that, that the grief transferring from generation to generation. Well, I think that this book is in part about feelings that demand to be felt and mm-hmm. find a way of being felt despite the best efforts of the characters. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in Lacey May's family, um, Lacey May remains very devoted to her troubled husband in some ways. Um, and that really interferes with her ability to show up for her girls in the ways that they need. And so all of her daughters have these frustrations and rage that they end up taking out on one another. Um, And that affects them when they're girls and then also when they're adults who come back home and have to figure out what's really left of their relationship as siblings. And then for Jade and G, Jade is concerned that the losses that she and G have suffered are so immense that G might never recover and might not have a good life if they feel the immensity of what they've lost. And so she really encourages him to keep a lid on the grief and put on a good face and focus on achieving. And that ends up making him very isolated and Mm -hmm. unsure of how to 
connect emotionally. Yeah. And it, he doesn't remember the big tragedy in his life. And yet, I guess it's that familiar, for, like his body sure does. It, it, yeah. It's locked in there. Yeah, absolutely. His body sure does, even if he might not understand that's what his body is doing because he's mm -hmm. just a teenager and thinks, you know, I'm anxious or I've got bad feelings and can't necessarily connect to that early experience the way adults reading the book might. I mean, or like I grind my teeth too much <laughs> and he's really like the the height of uh what i fear <laughs> i'm gonna get to in my anxiety like his um mouth guard doesn't do anything <laughs> yeah yeah well you know i'm a i'm a serious teeth grinder and i think i did it for years before i realized that i was doing it and i think that that's you know how we carry tension and anxiety and sadness in the body can be that way like mm -hmm. we don't realize that we're always tense or or often fearful because it just becomes you know one's way of being and i think that that's really true for g and so when noel and g finally meet in high school um they they join together for this production of measure for measure which i found to be a really interesting choice for the kind of play that they would be working on um, tell me about Measure for Measure as a problem play and about, yeah. yeah. Well, I love Measure for Measure. I love it because I think it's about how our moral judgments and opinions lead us astray. Sort of everyone in Measure for Measure is convinced they're right and it creates a lot of chaos. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's true in what's mine and yours too. Um, the mothers in this book are headstrong. They're very opinionated. They're doing what they think is right for their kids um, and sowing a lot of damage along the way. Mm -hmm. I also love that Measure for Measure um, ends in the promise of marriages. Mm -hmm. And so it has that aspect of being a comedy, but it's not quite right. The ending is strange. Not all the marriages are equally joyous. And I want in my book, to be one where there was love and joyous love and union, but also love that is missing, love that ends. And so an ending that was sticky and problematic and bittersweet. And so I thought that it resonated well with the kind of ending What's Mine and Yours has, but also the kind of book it is. Yeah, it's, it's a book about flawed characters finding good in each other sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, um, I was struck by how um, the ending has to leave you dangling a little bit or, or has to show an imperfect narrative. You let me know, but something I think about in terms of endings I love is you know what's still unfinished in the mm -hmm. ending because in our lives um we make some progress we find some closure but there are still things that hang over our head or feel unsatisfying um or partial and i wanted an ending that kind of reflected that that experience in life where there are good things but there are also things that haven't been resolved 
Robbie seems to be the the father of Noel, Margarita, and Diane. One of the threads that's left hanging, he's a drug addict who has been self-destructive for decades by the time we're done with him. And yet, I don't think this is giving too much away, his, his daughters are able to love him for who he is, is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think that his, his, his thread is left hanging because he's sort of always in the same loop um, mm-hmm. and in kind of the same sort of patterns and difficulties with his addiction and his daughters learn to live with it. They learn to live with not knowing what to expect Um, They learn to live with how to carry on with their own lives, with their father missing or sort of there, um, which is sad, uh, but doesn't um, prevent them from seeking their own lives and and partnerships and careers. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about each of their own lives, because we get to see all of them as adults um, and where they're I don't, their their younger tragedies have have brought them in in the present. Well, we talked a little bit about Diane, yes. who's the baby of the family, um, and she's the one who's sort of the peacemaker. She's the good one, and it's a position that she prizes but also resents. Thank um, you. Yeah, yeah, and you know what, how it manifests in her adulthood is she's trying to get her other sisters, Noelle and Margarita to get along. She makes excuses for her father, for her mother. She calls her mother old fashioned rather than saying, you know, mama's racist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she's hiding the, the love of her life, her partner Alma, because she's not sure how her bigoted mother will respond. Um, and so, you know, Diane, has a lot of ways that she's she's missing out on on joy sort of in service to being the good one in her family mm-hmm. and then margarita who's the middle sister um has always felt overlooked because noelle is sort of the one that lacy may's the most invested in and then diane's the sweet one and so she's constantly trying to get attention and to prove herself she's pursuing a career as a model, but really she's hoping to be a social media influencer in LA early in the book. And she, I think, is somebody who's always trying to turn down the volume of the pain in her life, whether that's with the right Instagram post or um, the right edible or the right, you know, kind of whiskey or night out in Venice Beach, um, which I think is something that quite a lot of us do in one way or another, like figure out ways to sort of escape the pain of being unseen or unrecognized by people who want to see us. And then there's Noelle who doesn't admire or respect her mother and the choices that her mother made for survival um, after separating from Robbie. And so she's uh, contrarian and rebellious, but also ends up quite like her mother in mm-hmm. adulthood by being very fixated on her marriage. Um, she desires to be a mother and the book follows her as she tries to conceive and have a child. And so, you know, she ends up being quite a lot like 
the mother she gives such a hard time to when she's an adolescent. And there, there's something I think in maybe just reading about what the book is, um, that Noelle and G, I expect them to be heroic in, in many ways. And it's so, it's refreshing to see Noelle in the present time, having stood up to her mother, having pursued the things that she wanted to pursue and still being left kind of like a character getting married at the end of Measure for Measure. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think, I think that as the book explores trauma, one of the things that I'm interested in is showing what gets recuperated, like the amazing things the characters are able to achieve and get for themselves and their loved ones, despite the, the experiences that they're carrying with them, but they're still carrying those experiences. So mm -hmm. they still have like hangups and, and ways of thinking and problems that they don't fully get out from under. And there, there's a scene um, in which Margarita and Noelle go at it. Yeah. And it, it seemed like a climax of sorts. Yeah. Um, juxtaposed, of course, with what's happening with their father. Yeah. Well, I love writing arguments in fiction. <laughs> I love writing sort of like heated, heightened arguments where people say things that they they later know they shouldn't have said to one another. I feel that I don't read enough of those conversations in books, maybe because they, they run the risk of seeming melodramatic. Um, but I know that they happen in life um, because they've happened to me and I hear about them happening to my friends and I've watched them unfold. And so I like writing those moments when characters really stop playing nice because they've reached a boiling point with their frustrations with themselves or each other. And there are a few moments like that in the book. Yeah, and those are the moments we tend to remember or fixate on or relive <laughs> over and over and over. Um, and, and then there's enough of the mundane too, to um, make it all stand out. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that there are all these patterns that people in the book have for the ways that they relate to each other. You know, each sister has her own kind of status quo with another sister. And I'm interested in what circumstances finally push that pattern to break a little bit. Mm. Um, and I do think that the sisters wind up at the end of the book with slightly different relationships mm -hmm. to one another and perhaps more honesty. And it's in part because of the breaking points that they reach with one another under pressure. Tell me about, you don't get to choose your family. Yes, you fucking do. What decisions you wanted your characters to make by the end um, as, as a sort of way of reckoning with their pasts and being able to move on if they are. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, this question of choosing your family is fascinating to me. You know, as someone who was, I was pregnant in the writing of this book and then uh, raising my daughter in her first year of life as I was revising it. And I think that the book is very much about the difficulty of figuring out how to choose yourself (laughs) and take care of yourself while also choosing to love the people around you. It's something that the mothers have to face. Like how do they choose themselves and their own dreams, whether that's pursuing a career as a nurse for Jade or still being in love with Robbie for Lacey May, but also knowing how to love their children. And it's the same for the kids, like figuring out how to live lives that they feel good about um, and whether that includes remaining connected to their siblings or their parents. And so I think what Alma is getting at there is that we have a lot of choice in who we remain connected to, even when we're bonded by blood or by marriage. And she says it because it's not the way that Diane is thinking. Right. Um, Yeah. And she's trying to sort of let her know that she can shape her life. Yeah. And, and that's, that's so empowering. (laughs) I kind of need to hear it. Um, Naomi, thank you so much. Um, Before we go, please recommend a few books for us, please. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, A book I read and loved recently was Infinite Country by Patricia Engel, um, which came out on March 2nd, the same day as my book. It's wonderful about the the struggles of a Colombian American family that's divided by deportation and their, their effort to find their way back to one another. I loved the short story collection, Milk Blood Heat by Dantiel Moniz, just wonderful um, stories of girlhood and womanhood and rage and desire. They're just wonderful. Um, My favorite book that I read last year was probably Cantoras by Carolina de Robertis about five queer women living under the dictatorship in Uruguay and their friendship over many years and this home that they create for themselves in a beach community. It's expansive and just wonderful and intimate. And I also really love and recommend Want by Lynn Steger Strong, um, sort of about downward mobility and Brooklyn and motherhood and books and boredom. And um, I just devoured that. It got me out of my reading rut earlier in the pandemic. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.